Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Retail sales, we got some numbers out this morning, weaker than expected, wrapping up a very difficult year for merchants. Let's get a sense of uh, what's going on in the world of retail. We could do that with one of the smartest voices out there on retail. That's Seema Shah. She's Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Seema, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, some weaker than expected uh, retail sales this morning. How's the consumer doing? Well, I think you have to step back and think about how they have been doing the whole year. I mean, they have been pressured significantly by the high levels of unemployment due to the pandemic. The stimulus, there was one in April and then one that just hit in January, but that's quite a wide time period. So I think people um, were really struggling. But at the same time, they are still spending, but they've changed the way that they spent. They shifted um, to online. And in many cases, they took on debt in order to pay for their holiday purchases, which is somewhat why we've seen some positive numbers uh, out of certain categories and certain retailers. Which is going to store up trouble down the line, right? What if those retailers yes. themselves go broke or bust? I mean, at that point, does the, the credit on the part of consumers just get wiped away? If the retailer goes bankrupt and they're owed money from these consumers, it's likely the consumer will just never pay because whatever assets are owned by the bankrupt retailer will be taken um, or, you know, in order of seniority by their debt holders. Um, but it's just more it's just more of a risk of just pushing the problem, you know, down the line. And consumers, you know, Joe Biden released his plan last night, but, you know, we really need to see a huge uptick and a reversal in the employment numbers. Uh, in order to see this ability to continue to spend uh, without having too much debt, right? And so, yeah. So, Seema, there's you know one of the things we we hear about a lot, uh, you know, is that consumer savings uh, are really ramping mm-hmm. up, and that potentially uh, that could be pent up demand, pent up spending when we get to the other side of that. What are the retailers saying about that opportunity for growth, uh, maybe in the second half of this year? They don't comment so much on the spending rate. And while I agree there probably has been some increased savings simply because there's, there was nowhere to go or nothing to necessarily buy, um, there is still a more a large portion of the population that had to dip into savings to manage um, their household bills over the last nine months. And I, I don't think that that will change anytime soon. But what will change is that if there is an uptick uh, we should start seeing uh, an uptick across retails, particularly in the more depressed categories like apparel, but we should also see a surge in travel and experience-oriented uh, type of retailers or, or companies, you know, including restaurants and bars. Well, actually, be ready just to go out. got a, a story if finished by Jordan Holman about November and December retail sales gains. The NRF mm-hmm. saying that they were up 8.3% from a year earlier and the group had prior forecast just a gain of 36 to 5.2. Is most of that then on credit cards, you think, Seema? I think a large portion of that is on credit cards. And another reason why I would think that is also because there's a huge surge in online sales and digital sales obviously require typically 
uh, a credit card to complete the transaction. So I, I definitely think there's a lot of pushing the problem off uh, to the future, for sure. Hey, Seema, one of the things that we've talked about with you in the past is kind of just the retail footprint in this country, maybe still too mm-hmm. overstored uh, in this country. What has the pandemic done to the store footprint and, and kind of how do you think that's going to play out uh, you know, over the next year or so? Right. This is something that uh, we at Credential have looked at uh, quite closely. So the initial impact from the pandemic was clearly that any retailers that were struggling or on the brink, those went bankrupt. And that in many cases led to uh, store liquidations and massive store closures. Um, as we've progressed, the retailers that uh, have continued to hang on, a lot of what we're seeing is they're thinking of rethinking their footprint, optimizing their footprint because of the impact of online and the fact that online is becoming more important. And it's really more about being an omni retailer versus just multiple channels. So I still think we'll continue to see retailers trim their footprint um, and, you know, focus on stores that are outperforming. So you see this in Bed Bath & Beyond is closing a fair number of stores. They also sold two banners and other retailers are doing the same thing to, you know, find the better locations and keep the ones that are performing the best. I mean, so will, not have the drag on sales. Will they all just move to Amazon? <laughs> Are you talking about consumers? I mean, no, right I'm now, talking yes, about all the mall stores that have to close the 12,000 that we know that are closing around the country. I mean, they have merchandise and they have good brands. Do they just sell them via Amazon? Um, there will be a portion who, who do that, but there are also other companies that buy sort of brands that have struggled. So like Pier 1 was purchased by a company and then they start recreating merchandise and selling just online. So I think you'll see some portion go to Amazon, but you might also see people create shops like on Shopify or, or something like to that end. Yeah, uh, yeah. To create, versus being on Amazon because Amazon is a huge competitive risk. So they might be better off doing it on Shopify where they can control their inventory and they can see what consumers are Seema, thank you so much. Uh, Always a pleasure speaking with you. Seema Shah there of Credit Intel. One of the bigger themes we've talked about over the last several years has been the convergence between media and technology and arguably this pandemic and the change in consumer habits has really accelerated that trend and there's nobody better on Wall Street to talk about this big trend than Laura Martin. She's a senior analyst at Needham and Company based in Los Angeles. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here. It's been a, a crazy time, obviously, in markets. It's been a crazy time in terms of consumer behavior as it relates to how we consume media and technology. What are some of the big themes you're looking at for 2021 for investors? So I think our biggest theme is this streaming theme, which squarely sits at the intersection of technology and media and specifically ad-driven streaming. So um, the streaming installed base of devices like connected TVs and streaming sticks doubled during the pandemic, and that benefited Netflix subscribers, Disney subscribers, Hulu subscribers. But who it didn't benefit is the advertising-driven streaming services like Roku, because advertising was $30 billion lower than it was supposed to be last year, because entire categories were turned off. We think that then reverses in 2021 and that subscription streaming services like Netflix lose subscribers. We haven't underperformed there. And instead, they pivot to things like Roku and Pluto and Tubi, which are ad driven because advertising is going to come back in 2021. 
Right, and it does feel like there has to be some kind of consolidation, right? Many people who hadn't caught the cord had been adding one or two services here and there, and then COVID hit, and I don't know, but I added everything I could find, <laughs> if, you know, and it didn't really matter what price point. If it was free, it was no more valuable to me than if it was, uh, you know, 20 bucks a month. Do people like me uh, get rid of some of these? Uh, you know, tell me my future. Uh, they do. I would say I, this is non-consensus view, but I absolutely think you do. As you go back into the real world, to dinner with friends and to movies with your kids, all of these uh, in-person events after post-vaccine um, are going to take away time in home. So the price value uh, relationship every month gets worse and worse as you go back into the real world. And so I think that the services that you use less, or if you've watched all the Netflix content, you're like, I'll take a break from Netflix for six months, come back to it later. And I'll watch my HBO now. And, you know, you saw Paramount Plus is going to launch. We just got the launch of Discovery Plus, which has interesting content. I think people are going to churn more between services as well. But have a core, like, three or four services total is my guess. Hey, Laura, no media company, I would argue, on the planet has done a bigger pivot towards the streaming business than the Walt Disney Company uh, with their Disney Plus and their ESPN Plus and so on. Are you surprised at how well the stock has performed as they make this pivot and lose so much of their existing profitability on something that may be a little bit unproven? Are you surprised at how well the stock has done near an all-time high? I am, and I will uh, – Polly and I followed this company for 20 years uh, together for competitors. So I would say I am. I would say part of the Disney uh, stock price improvement is about the reopen trade because these theme parks, which used to be 35% of Utah, are shut down and earning zero. So I think part of it is the reopen trade um, on the theme parks and the cruise ships coming back and the theaters, too, yeah. <laughs> coming back. So it is a reopen trade as well as being a streaming, absolutely a streaming pivot trade as well. Yeah, I mean... It- is there any legal liability at any point? I mean, we hear about, you know, Disney having to sequester some tourists in, you know, their very own theme park without a theme. <laughs> I like that, a theme park without a theme. Yes, I do think so. But I'm hoping, you know, post-pandemic, I would say Disney has a lot of earnings momentum to the upside because it is getting hurt in the media space the most right now. And I think it's sort of courageous of them to just keep spending money on streaming. I think they've really committed to that strategically. So I think that's courageous. And they started with a double-A balance sheet. So they're going to have plenty of financial withdrawal to do it all, to keep up with streaming and to have no money coming in from their core businesses. But that should reverse itself next year. So, uh, Laura, you mentioned that you have an underperform rating on Netflix. That is certainly out of consensus with 28 buys, 10 holds, and only six uh, sells are underperformed. What's your thesis there? So our thesis there is not only that there's uh, you'd rather we'd rather be somewhere else cyclically, we're more ad driven and less description driven. There's much more upsides to earnings in ad driven businesses as the vaccine rolls out. So that's part of it. And then more secularly, and I'd be shocked if you didn't agree with this, Paul, as a longtime media analyst. I really do believe in the bundle and an integration. So, for example, Discovery Plus and now Paramount Plus will have five revenue streams for the same piece of content. Netflix has one. And it can't cross-promote other things like theme parks or merch or ABC Entertainment. It has no other revenue streams, and it's about to go to war for the next five years with deep-pocketed, multi-siloed sister subsidiaries. CBS has a billion five of free cash flow. Free cash flow. And 
17 assets that can and can monetize content. Over. 17. Wow, it's going to be such an exciting time because you also cover the gamers and they're going to be exciting too. But Laura, um, you know, a little niche question, Fubo TV, what ends up happening with it? So Fubo TV is doing something really interesting. Um, and that, and so, and, and that's so. Therefore, it's a contentious, polarizing stock. Yeah. What they're going to try to do is integrate sports betting onto the face of a dig, of a streaming service yeah. to focus on sports. If they get that done, it will become the savior of the linear TV bundle for Car- Charter and Altice and Comcast. Those big companies can't do it because high, you know, high-priced, high-powered Silicon Valley twenty-year-olds won't go work for those big companies. But Fubo is hiring those tech geniuses to try to figure out how to integrate sports wagering onto the screen while you watch a game. Very interesting. Yeah. Laura, what are your thoughts on the cable stocks right here, the Comcast and the Charters of the world? Um, so I think they're hedged. You know, I think this rise in streaming, people call up their cable operator and need faster speeds and they pay more. So they're hedged in streaming and they have 80% margins in their uh, modem business. I think uh, the regulatory scrutiny will no longer be on them. I think it's all about big tech. The regulators are really going to focus on these, this twi- you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all banning the Republicans. It's going to is scaring the uh, is scaring Washington D.C. and they really want to mo- mo- moderate the power of these big tech. So I think cable doesn't have a regulatory issue, which is a big deal. Um, so um, I like the cable stocks, but I don't cover them all. Yeah, but Laura, Paul is going to say goodbye in a moment, but uh, you, we will have maybe a podcast um, or something a little different. Uh, I want to hear all those stories about uh, your time competing with Paul in investment banking and uh, analysis. Um, we'll get that on the side and, and maybe put it as an add-on to our podcast, The Tape, or something like that. So, Paul, thank you. And thank you to Laura from Needham. That is Laura Martin, senior analyst at Needham and Company. We've been speaking for years, but of course, uh, Paul didn't know yep. she was your competitor. Uh, yeah, and we, were, we, we worked together, then we competed against each other. So we've been covering this media space for a long time. So she's one of the best. It is now time to get an update on the vaccine distribution process and where we are with coronavirus, as we know already, at records. Lauren Sauer is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Lauren, we just had a headline across the Bloomberg, Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City, saying that New York City is going to run out of vaccine doses next week. What is the point of advertising this? I mean, are there blockages that are just, you know, frustrating this mayor? And and if so, what can we do about it? Yeah, I do think it's a bit of um, frustration. Um, the both uh, De Blasio and uh, Governor Cuomo have really had put a hard push forward for um, getting more vaccine into their state and city. And I know that New York did just expand to um, begin to vaccinate their elderly populations as well, which many states across the country are doing, especially given the challenges with getting vaccines into the healthcare worker population and the essential personnel population. Um, So they want to use the vaccination, the vaccine that they have on hand and get that into as many people who are willing to take it as possible. And New York opened up a bunch of vaccine hubs. So they they built these major or are building these major sites to really distribute vaccine quickly. So I think a big piece of this is actually a push, you know, to put a little pressure on the federal government to say, hey, we're doing our part now do yours to get us vaccine as quickly as possible. 
Lauren, you know, actually in my Twitter feed, I would say over the last day or two, I'm seeing more stories that perhaps, um, you know, the cases, uh, you know, the uh, vaccine, I mean, the number of cases in, in hospitals may be peaking and turning down, the number of infections being reported may be turning down. Are you seeing that at Johns Hopkins? I'll tell you right now, we are not feeling that. We've had a little bit of a leveling off is probably okay. the, the, the best place we could get, but um, you know, that might just be that people are trying to avoid coming into the hospital um, because they've heard so much about th- this crisis space that many hospitals across the state and across the country are in, right? So um, if I was mildly ill um, or had even moderate symptoms and I heard that the, the hospitals were just sending people home, you know, to convalesce at home or um, that hospitals were in crisis mode and I might be transported to a field hospital, I'm people might second-guess their decision to go to a hospital. Um, So I think we're all hopeful that perhaps there is a leveling off happening um, across the country, but I think we're also waiting to see, you know, we're on the tail end of that uh, New Year's and and Christmas holiday travel. Um, So it could get worse again before it gets better. Yeah, it's interesting. When will we see the peak of what might have gone on over the holidays? I mean, we're already two weeks into January. I would have thought that we'd have seen the peak from at least the holiday meetings by now. Yeah, I think um, there is still a ton of virus out there in the communities across the country. So, um, and, And anecdotally, we're hearing from friends and colleagues that Um, there's people who have been very cautious throughout all of this who are exhausted of being cautious and are sort of letting their guard down. And so there might be this whole population of people who have been very safe, very cautious, taken all the necessary precautions. And um, if they start to let their guard down, that's an entire new group of of potential people that could be exposed to this virus Mm -hmm. as they move about the communities. Lauren, what do you and your colleagues in the healthcare industry expect to change from uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration in terms of federal management of this crisis and now perhaps federal management of vaccine distribution? I think that's what we're all looking for, right? It's federal management. And so I think the the biggest hope that, that a lot of us have is that we'll see a more systematic approach across the country, more guidance, more um, clear direction from both Operation Warp Speed or whatever it turns into, but also from our, um, you know, really important, long-trusted, long-held public health agencies, um, particularly CDC, that they're going to issue guidance that's going to be clear, direct, succinct, and implementable, and that states across the country can really implement it. I also think people are sort of crossing their fingers for a national mask mandate. I think that could um, really do a lot of good across the country um, in slowing the spread and and putting a damper on those cases. Yeah, interesting. We have one in Congress, at least now. Uh, Lauren, you know, and and I'm concentrating a little on New York because they're the governors I tend to see in, 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 you know, my headlines here on the Bloomberg, given that I'm in New York City. But Governor Cuomo did seem to do a little bit of a U-turn recently, talking about how we need to reopen the economy and we need to find more ways to let businesses reopen safely. I mean, given that we're in a more dangerous time now than ever, is that wise? You know, I think um, we in public health get sort of this bad rep of not wanting the economy open, and no one wants the economy open and successfully running more than us. You know, it, it, the economy is so critically important to our ability to manage this virus long term, right? Um, it, it 
it, a functioning economy is absolutely critical. But the way to get to a functioning economy is to reduce the amount of viruses circulating in the population so that people can safely go about um, their business. And so I think both reopening the economy and getting schools back on track has to be a priority. Um, but it has to be done safely or else we're just going to be in this endless cycle of opening and closing and opening and closing and opening and closing. So the, the key, I think, is to get those policies in place to get rid of the virus as quickly as possible. Yep. Vaccine's going to help, but so will masks, and so will continued social distancing until we get there. Lauren Sauer, thank you so much for joining us once again. We always appreciate your insights. Uh, Lauren Sauer, she's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio operation. All right, well, we are going to have a conversation now about banks because right now the Wells Fargo call is ongoing. We got Wells and we got City so far today. So let's bring in Alison Williams, Senior Industry Analyst, Global Investment Banks and Asset Management at Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, as always, we have our cross-asset reporter, Sarah Ponzak, here with us. Alison, thanks for jumping off the call. Charlie Scharf with some very colourful language, let's put it that way. He says that the goal is to be the preeminent provider of US financial services and the strategy is about becoming crisper about (laughs) target markets. It all sounds a little bit vague and hopeful to me. Uh, Am I being too cynical? Well, I think that that is um, perhaps some of the frustration that investors are feeling with um, Wells Fargo. So, um, you know, Charlie has has sort of been in his seat for a while now. And uh, since that day, investors have been waiting um, to see how his strategy is going to reshape the bank. And one of the biggest levers is costs. Um, So, so two things. So first, um, I think investors are still waiting to get more more detail on the bigger picture strategy, but the two numbers that we got today were disappointing. And so costs looking um, higher than expected for this year and net interest income looking lower than uh, than expected. So both of those are negatives, but but it's really the cost um, side that things are focused on. And, and the other tie-in that I'll perhaps make to um, J.P. Morgan um, – And BlackRock, which we got yesterday, two banks that are actually executing very strongly, gaining share in their businesses. But both of those companies talking about higher investment spending, Wells Fargo also um, outlining its investment spend, um, which may be part of the higher costs for next year. And Allison, you know, Wells Fargo, you know, they've always been such a you know, very strong consumer banking brand, less so on the corporate and investment banking side. They've made some recent comments uh, about ramping up their investment banking business. How is the market perceiving that? I think that, um, you know, that's been an area where I I think investors over time have thought about, you know, that that could be an opportunity for the bank. They did, you know, if you go back very long term, you know, when they bought Wachovia, sort of get, get a little bit bigger in that business. Um, their wealth management business is also something that that's little talked about. That's done well for them. However, asset management is a bit, a little bit um, subscale, um, and 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 that sort of versus some of the some of the bigger competitors. So, um, it seems like there could be some opportunity on the investment banking side. But keep in mind that this is already an area that is um, super competitive. Um, and so, a lot of times when banks talk about going into attractive areas. Um, that it is a consideration in terms of who who is already there. And if you look at 
Um, again, J.P. Morgan, we've talked about the virtuous cycle of their tech spending, and they're going to be spending more. And that is really one of the areas that has helped them to be um, successful in their business. And what we've actually seen is the biggest companies consolidating yep. share. And so, um, you know, Wells Fargo potentially getting more aggressive is in contrast to some other um, folks leaving the business. Um, so we would want to hear more about how they're going to differentiate. And Alison, before you have to go, I do want to ask about the old enmity that's coming back again at uh, City and, you know, it was other banks at other periods, including Goldman Sachs. The folks trading spread products and other instruments managed to post a 58% increase in those revenues. And that made up a little bit for the, the drop in revenue that the firm's rates and currencies traders had. How, how will that go down when it comes to bonus season? So I think um, two things there. Keep in mind that, you know, when we look at these sort of year-over-year comparisons, it it always depends on on what was working um, in the prior year. And I would also point out that the the rates and currencies business was a huge driver of a lot of the uplift that we saw in uh, the first half. So um, to some extent, it is a little bit uh, about comparisons. I think with with regard to bonuses, um, so Bloomberg News has obviously reported on um, different policies across the banks. Obviously, the banks are, um, you know, vocal about considering all stakeholders in terms of they want to pay for performance. Again, we talked about the technology investment, but there's also a level of talent investment if you want to be successful in these businesses. but also balancing that with, um, you know, concerns about what we're seeing in the economy. We've also had some big banks take some um, big legal hits. um, And so that's sort of a consideration, a broader consideration. Alison Williams, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Alison Williams, Senior Banks Analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us the thoughts here. Big banks uh, turning. Uh, it really has time uh, for them to show and get some mixed results today. Sarah Ponzak, we've just in the last you know four or five minutes, we've seen the markets really roll over here. What's going on? Right. We really have. It doesn't seem like there's any true headlines that have come across the tape, at least that I've seen so far, that have caused this. Uh, but what Everquare ISI, Dennis Dubashir over there, is pointing out is the fact that all week long, it's felt like there was this pent-up nervous energy almost. And you saw it uh, really asserting it itself in different areas of the markets that we've discussed, that being in, in penny stocks, uh, in, in different areas of the market, just soaring left and right. And what he's saying is that to him, it feels that institutional investors might not be comfortable until some of the retail investors get cleaned out. And all of a sudden, we haven't seen a day like this in quite a while, it feels like we're really seeing the selling start to spiral. Now we see the S&P down 1.2%. I'm looking at the NASDAQ down 1% as well. The Russell 2000 down 1.7%. And we really do see a sputtering of this reflation trade energy your best performing sector this year well today it's your worst sector after the bank reports financials down more than two percent your second worst sector today sarah thank you so much for joining us we appreciate that sarah ponzak cross asset reporter for bloomberg news and of course allison williams senior banks analyst for bloomberg intelligence here markets uh selling off this morning big banks reporting mixed numbers Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.